Good morning. It's good to see you guys. It's been good to gather together um, as it is each week. Always good to see all of you. Well, there's a a reoccurring dream that I know many of you probably have experienced, especially if you went to college. That was probably this nightmare that you had while in college and probably since. And it's this, it's that you woke up and realized I had an exam this morning and maybe there's still time. And you're running across the campus trying to get there for the exam. Um, and you get there and it's too late. The doors are locked. They won't let you in. Uh, the exam's over. People are walking out. Sorry, you missed it. So there's that dream. That's, that one's no fun. You probably have it your whole life, I think. My wife still says she says that dream. Um, <clears throat> but I, I do remember a, an actual fear that I had while I was in school uh, that was like real time. Every time I went into a test, there was this like momentary panic as the tests were being passed out. And, and the, the panic, the, the, the anxiety was this. It was, did I study the right thing? Like, did I prepare for the right test? Like, did I see the right line in the syllabus that said what this test was on? Uh, did I study the right chapter? Uh, because no matter how hard I studied for chapter five of the, the Western Civ textbook, if it's on chapter six, I'm toast, right? So then, you know, the tests get handed out and I flip mine over and look at the first question and go, oh, I recognize that question. I'm good. Okay, we're good. The test will be okay. Uh, everyone wants to pass. Like we want to pass the test. We all want to be approved, to be impressive, to hear that we did well. And, and, and I think in today's text, Jesus is giving us a parable about two different men, each who take very different paths, but both want the same thing. They want approval. And only one of them will get it. And here's the paradox, is that the way up is actually the way down. That the right path toward approval will actually look like the opposite of what we might think. And so as, as we go through this parable from our Savior today, I, we're gonna, together, let's just rest for a second. From, we're not impressing each other. I, I'm, you're not about to get a test handed out to you this morning. Um, so we can relax together. And let's, let's just hear the words of our Savior um, as we see four truths about this upside down approval uh, that we find in the kingdom of God. Uh, so here's our, here's our four points in the sermon. Number one, the confidence of pride. Number two, the surrender of humility. Number three, the gospel reversal. And lastly, the path to approval. So let's, let's begin as we read a minute ago over in verse nine, uh, we read this. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. So Luke's giving quite a setup here. Like he's setting us up for the story uh, that Jesus is telling this story to confident people, people who were sure they were righteous, that they were right with God and that everybody else was way, way off. Now, you probably know who he's talking to. Um, if, you've, if we've been traveling through Luke for a while, um, I, I'll, I'll give you a hint. It starts with fair and ends with assize, uh, right? They're always here, right? We're always hearing from them. So here we are again, uh, and Jesus is telling yet another story to the very Pharisees who are, the, who are also the butt of the joke. And if we aren't careful, I think when we hear these stories over and over, the Pharisees can quickly become these little two-dimensional figures. Like it's, and that's just not true. They're not because aren't we like them? Just because you are, aren't a first century Jewish legal expert 
does not mean you're exempt from the same sins that they are prone to. Do we not all think of ourselves uh, rightly as compared to others? Do we not all see often uh, our morality as being superior and we look to others and we, we judge them or critical of them? Of course we do. And so we need to hear the Lord's words um, as, we, as we move forward. So let's, let's look at number one, the confidence of pride. Verse 10 says, here we're getting into the story. Verse 10 says, two men went up uh, to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So a Pharisee and a tax collector walk into the temple. Sounds like the beginning of an Aggie joke. Um, but we've, we've heard this comparison so many times, right? Uh, I think we get the distinction. The, the Pharisee is revered, treated like royalty, uh, receives reverence and honor everywhere he goes, likely very wealthy. And the tax collector is despised, uh, treated with disgust, also likely wealthy, but at his fellow Jews' expense, viewed as a criminal, as a traitor. So what do we read about these men? Verse 11. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. All right, so I think we can hear this and just know like this is, there's something wrong here. And so I'll, can I just from the start say, in my best Jeff Foxworthy voice, if your public prayers sound like a spiritual resume, you might be a Pharisee. <laughs> if, if your prayers include the list of other people's sins, but not lists of your own, you might be a Pharisee. Let, let me just give us just three quick observations about the Pharisee's prayer. Uh, first, uh, his audience. He's, he's standing in the temple and praying, which likely means this is a public prayer uh, intended to be heard by others who've come to the temple. Now, this, this isn't necessarily bad. It would have been part of his normal, the moral, normal duty of a Pharisee. Uh, public piety was the career path he was on. Uh, they were a, a particularly, uh, they, they wore particular clothes, garments uh, that, that, were, that, that showed who they were. They performed public service, uh, but they also twisted their public ministry. They made a, a public show of avoiding sinners, and staying, keeping their distance from sinners, which was not something required of them by the law. They conducted performative feasts and fasts for worship just to be seen, not because they wanted to worship God. And we know that because Jesus tells us. And most certainly that sort of performance shows up in their prayers. Uh, now there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with praying publicly. Uh, we pray publicly here. We read many beautiful public prayers in the scriptures. Uh, no, the problem was the intent behind their prayers. Jesus said this in Matthew 6. He says, whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. Jesus knew. He knew what they were after. They wanted to be seen. Second, we see the content of his prayer. Notice he, he's not just... He's not just standing front and center in the room that they're in. Like he is front and center in the prayer. The whole prayer is a brag fest for him. And he's packaging it as gratitude. 
Dads, you've probably gotten or have seen a Father's Day card like this. Uh, if, you, if it's not, you know, it's, it's not too late, you can run to the store. There's probably like six cards left. Um, you can run and look, read the cards, but you've probably gotten one that says something to this effect. Uh, it, it says something like, uh, you must have been a great father. Thanks for everything you did because look at me. Look how great I am. I'm the best, I'm the best ever. I'm the most handsome. I'm the most this. So thanks for doing that. Way to go, dad. And it's, you know, it's a joke, right? Like we laugh, it's a funny, it's like a funny card, but the Pharisee is making the same joke, but he's not laughing. Like it's not a joke to him. He, he, look how ridiculous it is. He's saying, God, I thank you. But then he proceeds not to name a single thing he's thankful for about God. No, it's just, God, I thank you that I'm like this, that I have done this. Way to go, God. Look at me, you made a great one. I'm kind of a big deal. I'm basically an all-star. You're welcome. This, this activity of prayer uh, says this is a moment about God, but the content of the prayer, uh, the words that he's saying actually say, look at me. This is about me. Can you believe what, what I did? I fast twice a week. Can you believe that? Thank you, God, that I do such great things. Which, by the way, fasting twice a week was not required by, uh, for God's people. There was only one prescribed fast per year. Many would do it more, but he, he, he did it twice a week. I give a tenth of everything. M- many Pharisees would tithe all the way down to the spice rack. They would tithe uh, with great fine detail, uh, which all the way, also, also much of which was not required. Uh, but here he is telling everyone. And, and isn't, this, isn't this the sort of public discussion of, of private worship That's the opposite of what Jesus instructs. Jesus said, when you fast, don't contort your face or distort your face. Don't, in fact, wash up. Like look clean, make make it so that you don't look like you're fasting. And here are the Pharisees just telling everyone, I do it twice a week. How about with giving, right? Remember what Jesus said about giving. He said, don't do do it in such a way that your, your left hand doesn't even know what the right one does that you don't even know what you are giving. You're, you're keeping it that much private. Um, in other words, don't draw attention to your giving. Don't, don't even let yourself know how generous you are. Don't ponder that. But still here the Pharisee is praying loudly about how much he gives, how much he tithes. Why does Jesus caution against this? It's because he knows, like he knows our pride. Like he knows what we're prone to, how wicked our hearts can be. These, these cautions that Jesus has, has given about, you, about trumpeting our, our, our private practices of, of devotion, they're, they're a warning, they're a caution saying, careful, slow down, don't be public with your righteousness because there's a curve ahead, like you're gonna, you're gonna go off of it and, and the Pharisees barreling through, barreling through the signs, barreling through the warnings at 100 miles, 100 miles an hour. And not only is he announcing his righteousness, He's, he's doing it in the form of a prayer. Lastly, about his prayer, what is, what's the standard of measure that the Pharisee is using to measure himself? How does he determine his righteousness? He, he's not referencing God's law as the standard of his righteousness. He, he does, he's not quoting the scriptures uh, as, as a measure of his obedience. Now, you wanna know why he's so confident in his righteousness? He's measuring his righteousness against everybody else. It's a sliding scale. 
and he's, and he's on top. Everyone else is so disgusting, God, but look at me. For him, righteousness is a game and he has the top score. Martin Luther said this, he said, be careful not to measure your holiness by other people's sins. And isn't that so important? Isn't that such a trap? Look again at, at verse nine. We read that he, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. So, so catch this, that their pride is actually a backward search for approval, for acceptance. In all of the posturing of the Pharisees, all of this, this Pharisee's boasting, all his comparison, what is he after? He really wants to be told, good job, well done. And the Pharisees do hear it. They do get many pats on the backs, many, many attaboys. But, but pride in self, positioning ourselves to be seen it will get us some of those. Jesus did say, you'll get your reward. That is your reward. But pride will either tell you you're good, you're approved, look at you, how you're compared to everybody else, what, what great things you've done, or pride will say, man, what a failure you are. You're such a failure. In fact, you can earn your way back with God if you double down, if you work hard again, and maybe you'll be accepted but what is this approach of pride? What does this say about the Pharisees' view of God? It says that God is actually achievable, that he's not far out of reach, that he, he's, he's able to be appeased. Maybe I need a little boost, a little shot in the arm from time to time, but mostly I am my own hope. The Pharisee was his own Lord, his own savior. And so he prayed this way, look at me. Look what I've done. I'm confident that I've done enough. And so he tells God and he tells everyone else. Okay, so there's this other man in the scene. And, but I think we're gonna see he's actually after the same thing. So that leads us to number two, the surrender of humility. Look at verse 13. But the tax collector standing far off would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest saying, God have mercy on me, a sinner. So what can we see about his prayer? Let's look at, let's look at the same things about his, this tax collector's prayer. What is, what's his audience? He doesn't really have an audience, does he? Uh, notice he's standing far off. Uh, this means he's probably not part of the, of the public uh, gathering that's happening here. As a tax collector, he certainly would have been uncomfortable uh, in the temple. And it's, it's as though he's trying not to be seen by the people, keeping his distance. Uh, his prayer clearly isn't for the purpose of being heard by men. No, you, you can see that his audience really is God. That's who he's speaking to. And notice the content of his prayer. With the tax collector, we, we actually get more, more than words. There's not many words. We actually get more physical posture. It's, it's, it's as though he can barely look to God that we read. He, he won't even look up to the heavens. He, he knows he has no business being near God. In fact, it's, it's so bad that we read that he, he beats his chest. He inflicts pain upon himself. It's as, as, as a sign that he, that he knows what he really deserves. 
He's kind of like my, my dog. If you have a dog, you kind of, maybe you've experienced this. When the dog is in trouble, uh, what, is, what, is, what, is the do, what does the dog do? He's done something wrong. At least my, I know mine, just like the head goes down, like the posture slumps, tail tucks. Uh, he knows he's messed up. But amazingly, if, if, if you have a relationship with the dog, the dog, what does what? The dog still kind of comes to you. Like hesitant, yes, but like bent, bent low, but he comes, why? Because the dog, that's all the dog got. Like you're it, <laughs> you're the only master. And this tax collector has that posture of, of, of being low, eyes low, willing to receive punishment because where else is he gonna go? And when he finally speaks, what does he cry out? God, have mercy. God, have mercy. No resume, no list of spiritual accomplishment. Have mercy. And lastly, what's, what's his standard? How does he measure his righteousness? Notice he, he doesn't compare himself to other and worse sinners. No, what does he say? He says, have mercy on me, a sinner. There it is, that's his, that's his whole standard. It's that there is a giant gap. God is high, he is holy, he's perfect, and I'm not. I'm low, I'm a sinner. And how can a sinful man come close to a holy God without being destroyed? How can someone like this be approved? Only by mercy. Destruction is what he deserves. And so he needs, he needs the high and lofty God to condescend to him. So, so don't, don't miss this. The tax collector and the Pharisee, they're after the same thing. They want the same thing. Two people praying almost opposite prayers, seeking the same thing, seeking approval to be right, to be right with God. And the, the Pharisee, he's confident he's got it. Everyone has told him he's got it. He, he's, he's so sure. There's no doubt in his mind. He looks around and he sees everyone else and he says, they don't got it. I've got it. I've done it. Meanwhile, the tax collector is confident in only one thing. He doesn't have it. He doesn't have it. He knows. He knows that approval is beyond his attaining. And it's only God's gift if he would give it. It's only God's mercy that he would receive it. So which man is approved? Which one does Jesus say is accepted by the Father? Which is number three, the gospel reversal. So here, here's the clincher of the parable. Look at verse 14. He says, I tell you, this one, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. So whose prayer was received by God? Who was made right? The tax collector. He was justified, his sins forgiven. He received the mercy. And the spiritual all-star Pharisee with the fantastic resume rejected. Why? Jesus answers right here. Because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. 
Boy, that's such a turn of phrase, isn't it? You and I must first have one thing. One thing in order to be received by Jesus. Need. We must know we need. And this, this is the great reversal. Gospel humility says, I lack the forgiveness and approval that only God gives. And self-exaltation and pride says, I already have it because I did it myself. And this is the upside down nature of the gospel. It's counterintuitive to how we approach many things. God's approval is not Mount Everest. It's not a peak reserved only for the strong who might climb to the peak in their own strength. Those who would buy the right gear and follow the right path and the right map where they might get on the right trails to impress God by their hard work and strive to climb all the way to the top to be, to, to be approved by him. No, those kinds of climbers, those who seek to exalt themselves, I think Jesus is saying it, it's, it isn't that they will simply be cast back down to the bottom of the mountain. No, it, it's that they will round the corner of the first leg of the climb after spending hours and hours of climbing and days only to realize they never got any closer. They never made any ground. To climb the mountain of God's holiness apart from the completed work of Christ is an exercise in futility. It's an exercise in self-condemnation. No, there is only one path to the summit. There's only one way to the peak where God's approval lies, but the path is unexpected. The path is actually downward. To, to be accepted, you must first acknowledge your unacceptability. To be, to be made clean, you must first see and, and acknowledge your own filth. And to be received to the heights with God, the gospel says, don't climb harder, rather go low, humble yourself, cry out for mercy so that Jesus Christ might carry you to the top. Isn't that amazing? Isn't it amazing that God's righteous standard is both insurmountable and yet available to all. You cannot earn it. There is no way you could deserve it or achieve it. And yet Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. The gospel of Jesus is not for the elite. It is not for the special. You, you're here today, and, and, and if, if, it's, if, you're, if you're here because you go, you know what, I am, there's no way. I have done so much. I have screwed up far too long to ever be approved of by God, ever be loved by him. I've gone on rejecting him for, for, for too long for him to now accept me and do anything other than push me away. That's false. He says, come, cry out for mercy and he will listen. He will save you. He will welcome you. There's a great prayer from 
the Valley of Vision, which is a book of Puritan prayers that we'll read from from time to time. And it's actually the prayer that the book is named after. Uh, the prayer is called the Valley of Vision. Um, and I, I wanna read just a small selection from it because I think it gets at this exact idea. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the valley of vision where I live in the depths, but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. This is what it means to be a Christian. This, this is the only path to glory. Jesus did not come for the well. No, he came to heal the sick. He didn't come to lift the rich to greater riches. No, he came to bring the kingdom to those who are poor in spirit. He came for the broken. He came to give rest to the weary. He makes no room for the proud. No room for the boastful. He opposes the self-sufficient. Why? Not to be cruel, but because there's no way they can get there. There's no other path to God's approval. And the proud refuse to see it. But for those who cry mercy, the Father's heart opens wide. Which leads to our final point, the path to approval. This section of scripture ends with this beautiful scene that starts in verse 15. And we actually kept this uh, together with the parable uh, because I think it's, I think of uh, how Luke, I think has paired them together here. Um, and so look in, look in verse 15. People were bringing infants to him <clears throat> so that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. Jesus, however, invited them, let the little children come to me and don't stop them because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I think there's some interesting things going on here. First, it's, it's fascinating that the disciples kind of see themselves as Jesus' bodyguards. I mean, I think that's just interesting and funny. Like, let's keep the king of the universe safe, guys. Um, we'll protect you, Jesus, from danger. Uh, so that's funny. Uh, but, but even still, if they're protecting him, why are they protecting him from babies? Like, is Jesus allergic to babies? Is he... Uh, he likes babies, I think we see. Uh, but it doesn't seem like that. The disciples are making a value judgment. They've, they've bought a cultural assumption that children are unimportant, which would have been a very common thought. And the tiniest ones, babies and infants, they're the least useful, the least important of all. And I'll, I'll just say this as a, as a side note, uh, that, that if Jesus has time for babies and for infants, like, shouldn't that impact our willingness to be around them? Like to have them in our life groups making noises? Uh, Shouldn't that maybe impact our desire to go want to be in their classes? If Jesus loves them and invites them in, that we would want to go and teach them and encourage them. Um, that's, that, was, that part was not part of the sermon, but there you go. Um, so back to the text. Uh, see, the disciples are trying to keep Jesus, Jesus on track here. Like 
there, there's important ministry going down, Jesus. You need to, you need to remember, uh, you don't have time to bless babies. Other religious, religious leaders aren't out blessing babies, Jesus. Keep moving. Uh, but can we just feel the weight of these two, this parable and this, this section back to back, these two encounters? It's as though Luke is tracing back over Christ's words in the story uh, with a highlighter. Did you not hear what he just said? The only ones approved by Jesus are the humble, the lowly, and the ones who cry mercy. Not the big shots, not the impressive. No, the invitation has gone out and those who know they can't help themselves, you can come to Jesus. All who are thirsty, all who are weary, all who are helpless and weak, come. And what creature on planet earth is more helpless and weak than a human baby? So Jesus tells his men, he tells his disciples, what are you doing? Like, keep them come, keep the children coming. Don't, don't you dare stop them. And then, then he ends uh, with this hope. He says in verse 17, truly I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Just like the tax collector who cried out for mercy, only those who will debase themselves, only those who will see themselves as lowly and insignificant as a little baby, only those sorts of people will enter the kingdom. Only those are the ones who will be forgiven and accepted by the Father. You have to become like a little child, he says. I remember a number of years ago going with my kids to one of those indoor bounce places with all the inflatables. This was probably like over 10 years ago. And uh, if you've been to those with kids, it's chaos. Um, and I remember uh, my, my daughter, Annie, sorry, sweetie. Uh, she was, she was, this was, she's probably, you know, under three, probably maybe under two. Uh, she's there doing her little thing. And my boys at this point are probably cannonballing off of some, I don't know what they're doing. They're just jumping, um, going nuts at this point. And, uh, but Annie has identified the biggest slide in the place. It's like, I don't, I don't know, it's, it, it's pretty impressive actually. These massive, like almost two-story bounce house slides. And she's, she's made her way to it and has decided she's gonna go up the, the, the slide. And so she begins working her way up the rungs and she can't get more than two rungs up before she loses her grip and, and slides back down. And, and I can, I'm watching her and I can see, like she's tried a couple times and she's, she's losing heart. So, so what did I do? Well, I walked over and I said, toughen up. Work on that grip strength. <laughs> no, I didn't do that. Uh, I, no, I, I looked at her and she looked up at me and as, it was though in that moment she knew you can help. And she looked up, she didn't say anything. And with like frustrated tears kind of still there, she just looked up and held up her arms. So what did I do? Picked her up, put her on my shoulders, and we started the climb all the way up, working my grip strength. Here we go, all this 25 rungs or whatever up this thing. And that singular move of raising her arms in the air, what did she do? She said, mercy, mercy. If you wanna feel the riches of the mountaintop of God's approval. 
and quit striving. Lower your shoulders, relax, and look to the Father. Reach out for Christ. Like a little child, cry mercy. And Jesus will carry you all the way to the top. And listen, it it may seem impossible for, for you to be that helpless. Maybe you've spent your whole life trying to prove yourself to God and to everyone else. Maybe you had a dad that, that never said he loved you, that, that he was never pleased with you, that he, 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 never, he, he didn't care unless you could produce for him. Your heavenly father's not that way. Maybe it's terrifying to, to even talk or think about telling others how imperfect you are, most especially God. But get this, that's your only hope. He is your only hope. That the divine God of heaven, the one who spoke galaxies into existence, get this, he actually became a child. The perfect one became needy. The omniscient one, he had to learn to eat and to walk and how to go to the bathroom. He lived that way for 30 years with the frail limitations of humanity, setting his glory aside. And we like to think that we are strong. But Jesus is the most powerful being in the universe. And he had every right to stand proudly in the temple, to be center stage, and to demand everyone there to worship him. But instead, he went low. Sentenced at night at an unfair hearing, dragged out to a hillside where he died the death of a criminal, the one, the death you deserved. The death I deserved. Why? He did it all so that you could give up your pretending. He did it so that you could receive strength, not your own strength, but his. So that you could have his eternal forgiveness and approval before the Father. And so all you must do is go low. To be like a child. To cry out for mercy. And because Jesus is alive, the Father doesn't just make you better. He makes you his child. You don't have to prove yourself now to the Father. You don't have to impress him. No, you come helpless as a sinner and you cry out for mercy. You lift your arms to the Father and he will carry you to the heavenly places with Christ. Let me pray for you. Oh Lord, would you, would you help each of us to believe this is true, to believe that it is not by our own strength, but rather it is you who have approved us because you have made us righteous because of the work of your son, the perfect life he lived in our place, the death he died for us, and now his resurrected life at work in us is what gives us any hope Uh, to walk in righteousness, any hope to live a life that pleases you. So Lord, if if there are people here today, Lord, anyone in this room this morning that that is exhausted from trying to prove their way with you, feels condemned because they could never measure up, Lord, would you help them to embrace that? 
to embrace that they couldn't do it so that they might look to the mercy that you give. And Lord, for those of us who are your children who have been saved, Lord, would you help us to rejoice again that mercy came to us. And would you help us uh, to walk in a manner that's worthy of what you have called us to, that it is no longer we who are living, but it is Christ who lives within us. So we rejoice. Would you help us now? And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.